All right, all right. Let's stand up on our feet this morning if you're able to, and let's declare our faith as we prepare to open the scriptures. Say it with me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's pray. Whom have we but you, O God? In life and in death, we belong to the Lord. So here and now we surrender again. Here and now we turn our attention to you again. Here and now we turn our hearts to you again. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would warm our hearts for the kingdom of God, that you would warm our hearts for the glory of Jesus, that you would warm our hearts for the Father who loves us before we were anything, when we were still just thoughts in your mind. Oh God, you loved us and you set your affection upon us, and you planned good things for us and a glorious future in your new world. All of those things you saw ahead of time. Would you help us in these moments that we have together, help us surrender to those truths? No, help us surrender to you. (laughs) The psalmist said, I hide myself in you, O God. Would you help us this morning tuck ourselves away in the goodness that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the great love that holds the sun and all the other stars in the skies and keeps them spinning, that love that has carried us from the first and will carry us to the last. Help us surrender to that love. Come, we pray. We ask that as we open the scriptures that they would break forth with new wisdom for us, new understanding for us, light that leads us to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Illuminate the path for us. Teach us how to live in the moment that you've given us right here, right now. Give to us that new name again. Name us. Locate us in your love. Grant that we are praying. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth And the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, 
You may be seated. Isaiah chapter 12. The prophet says, In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord, although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself, is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. And with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said... Thanks be to God. Isaiah says, in that day, in that day. What day is that? It's the last day, the end of all things. In that day, you will say. And Isaiah looks towards a future in which all of Israel's shame and reproach and embarrassment and guilt is lifted away. And God restores the fortunes of Israel so much so that they have to just, they're reduced to just having to say, great is the Holy One of Israel in our midst, you know. Like that presence that goes with us everywhere and is hidden in all things, the prophets believe that one day at the end of all things, that presence, the very presence of God, would be so manifest that it would push death and destruction and chaos out of God's world and would establish Israel and the nations in the presence of God in wholeness and tranquility forever. The prophet Zephaniah says something very similar to Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 14. Zephaniah writes, Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. For the Lord has taken away your punishment, he has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. And on that day, there it is again, on that day, what day? The last day, the end of all things, they will say to Jerusalem, Don't fear, Zion, don't let your hands hang limp. For the Lord your God is with you. He's the mighty warrior who saves and he will take Great delight in you and his love. He will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you. Or the old translations say he will dance over you with singing. And I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and a reproach for you. And at that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. And at that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will. Isn't this a great line? At that time, I will bring you home. Isn't that the thing that we long for more than anything else? We long for home, for a place that's ours, that's secure, that's peaceful, undisturbed. And the Lord says, a day is coming when I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Once again, brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. The Christian orientation towards history There's not an orientation that kind of believes that everything's just going to go on and on forever. You know, the physicists will sometimes say that we may be headed to either a great crunch again at the end of all things. You know, like there's a big bang and there'll be a good, or it might be that we're just kind of headed to entropy. That everything will just kind of, uh, the universe will get empty and it'll spread out further and further and it'll get very cold and everything will die and that will be it. That is one thing to believe about the universe. That is not what Christians believe about the universe, is it? What Christians believe about the universe is that there is a day coming at the end of all things when our God will stand up and that life that is the eternal life of God will actually overrun all of the sin and death of our world in such a way that, uh, well, John says it best. 
In John chapter 21, he says, Behold, I saw there was a new, do you know it? New heaven and a new earth. The old heaven and the old earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And the voice from the throne says, Behold, I am making everything new. So everything in the Christian imagination doesn't just run out of steam, but we are careening towards a day in which all of those things that mar and deface God's good world will be wiped out and all things will be made new. Not all new things, it won't be a replacement, but all the things that we love, guys, all the things that are most precious to us and that feel fraught and damaged and coming apart at the seams, God will actually renew all of those things. All of, here's a good news for you. All of the lost things will be found again in God's world. And when we see them again with our own eyes, I love all the moments in the prophets where the prophets say that at the end of all things, you're actually going to see your sons and your daughters coming home. Like those sons and daughters that you thought were lost forever, they're coming home again. This great like ingathering, all the things that are most precious to us guys. God is going to give them back to us and better than ever. That's the promise of the scriptures, which is why Paul says that if anybody is in Christ, he is a, it's new creation. New creation is the promise that's given to us in Jesus Christ. And so Advent is a promise that there is a future coming, guys, that is better than the present. Can I get an amen from somebody? It's a future coming that's better than the present. We are not just left here kind of suffering, trying to manage things for 70 or 80 years and then die and then we go away. That's not it. But we, we're looking towards a moment when everything is put back together again. It's a promise that the future is coming and it's better than the present. And that promise energizes us because promises like that always do. When we believe that there's something coming that's good, that's good, that goodness is happening, it has an effect on our bodies, our minds, our spirits. Somehow it shifts our disposition. A happy heart, the writer of Proverbs says, makes the face cheerful. But a despairing heart, it actually causes rottenness in the bones, right? Hope energizes us. Hope actually is like healthy for us. It's good for us. And that's one of the things I think that is beautiful about the holiday season Uh, When Christmas rolls around, there is like this, we know that December 25th is coming. And whether you believe in Jesus or not, December 25th is a day that most people celebrate and they exchange gifts and it's glorious and wonderful. And there is like Christmas cheer in the air. Don't you love Christmas cheer? I love Christmas cheer. I used to be crabby about Christmas cheer. I'm going to be really honest with you. When I started learning a little bit about the church calendar and all that, I was like, well, Advent is not exactly Christmas and everybody's got this backwards, you know. And Advent is a time of darkness and waiting and all of that. And, you know, those people on Madison Avenue, they don't even love Jesus. But they're capitalizing on Jesus to try to sell a bunch of stuff and Starbucks and their Christmas things or happy holidays or whatever. It's just all, it's just a bunch of commercialism and crap. That's how I felt about it. And I don't feel that way anymore. Do you know why? Because life is better when people are happy. All right? And Christmas makes everybody happy. And everybody's wandering around. They're just a little bit nicer, you know, and so it's a good thing. And why is it? Because we're like waiting for this day, the day of Christmas, and we open presents. Now, in my family, I don't know if your family is like this, but like our little Christmas tradition is uh, we worship together on Christmas Eve. This year, we're going to worship with New Life East on Christmas Eve. At what time? Four and six. I know you did. They paid attention to Rory. Good job, Rory. And so we're going to worship with you all on Christmas Eve, and then we're going to go home. And we're going to get in comfortable clothes and we're going to turn the lights down and light up the Christmas tree. It's going to be real nice. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get out the night before Christmas and I'm going to read it to the kids. And even though they think it's a little annoying and weird, it's tradition. And without tradition, we die. We learned that from Fiddle Around the Roof, right? (laughs) Tradition, right? 
And so we have this tradition. And last year, I did it. I did that reading in an outrageous Russian accent. Um, because St. Nicholas, he was Russian. You didn't know that. But now you've learned something this morning. And the kids, they, I, I don't know. It's tradition. It's beautiful. But one of the things that we do on Christmas Eve is we don't put out all of the presents under the tree on Christmas Eve. We put a couple presents out. You know, so like everybody gets to open one thing and then they go to bed and then the presents magically appear. And our oldest is about to be 16 years old, but I know he feels the magic too, that it's all just what? Right? And you open all the rest of the presents on Christmas morning like good Christians are supposed to do. That's how we do it. This is catechism class, right? I'm trying to teach you how we do these things. But I love that. It's energizing, right? We have this like hope that we're moving towards. And that way of doing the presence, I, I don't think that I can't like claim that we deliberately did it this way, but in a way it actually matches the way that Christians think about history. That in the first coming of Jesus, we have that first taste of the kingdom of God, right? That first present on Christmas Eve. And then there is this period of waiting and we get the rest of the presents at the end of all things, right? That, that's the way that Christians think about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God has dawned among us and it also will come in its fullness at the end of history. So that means that history has a goal. It has a purpose. We're moving towards something. And again, it gives us energy. It gives us hope in the present. Now, not everybody thinks this way about history. During the time of Jesus, the days of the early church, there was a group of Greek-speaking folks called the Stoics. And the Stoics, number one, did not believe in any kind of transcendent deity. Okay? So they believe that all you see is all there is. And deity, such as it is, kind of coheres with the natural universe. And there's this sort of natural ebb and flow. And everything at the end of all things will actually just kind of run out of steam and die. So the Stoics didn't actually believe in a kingdom at all. What they really believed in was fate. And so for the Stoics, if you wanted to be a happy person, the Greek word for it was eudaimonia. If you wanted to be a happy person, a tranquil person, what you do is you just adapt yourself to fate. And you organize yourself towards that. And that's how you achieve tranquility in this life. And around the same time in the eastern side of the world... In India, we had Buddhism, right? And Buddhism more or less taught, and Buddhism is still on offer today, right? That Buddhism basically taught the same thing. That there are these sort of world processes that go on and on and on forever. And what causes misery in this life is clinging too tightly to things. So if you want to be a happy person, what you do is you achieve relinquishment. You let go of all things. And hopefully you can attain some state of nirvana in which you then are a more peaceful person, placid person. You have a more genial disposition amid all the chaos of the age. Stoicism and Buddhism in many ways are just kind of mirror images of each other. And I think that those are easy philosophies to lock into. I was listening to an interview not too long ago with the gal who wrote the book Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert. Some of you might have read it or you saw the movie or whatever. I think, uh, who was it? Was it Julia Roberts or something? Yeah, okay. See, there you go. Julia Roberts fan club over here. I see you. And Elizabeth Gilbert is a very spiritual lady. And it was interesting to listen to the interview. And the interviewer asked her, Elizabeth, what is it that gives you hope? And she said, well, you know, honestly, she goes, I think that actually both fear and hope are illusions. And the interviewer said, well, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, both of them are based on futures that probably won't happen. So we get filled with a lot of dread, right? Because we're imagining a bad future or we're filled with kind of this false optimism because we're imagining a future that may or may not happen. She says, so they're both illusions. And the guy goes, well, so then what, do you have hope at all? She goes, yeah, I do have a form of hope. And my form of hope is just that everything in some way is all mysteriously connected. 
and that there is that, like, this sense of connection is kind of guiding all things. And that's, that's, that's like, the source of hope for me. And I thought about that. <laughs> I, actually, I had a couple different levels where I thought about that. In the first place, I thought, I see why. Do you know that in the first few centuries of the church, Stoicism was a tempting philosophy for a lot of Christians to believe in? Just as in our own time, something like Buddhism is very tempting for a lot of Christians to believe in. And that's because there's a part of our faith that calls us to something similar, calls us to accepting, you know, into your hands I commit my spirit, right? That kind of like adapting to whatever is going to be. And also relinquishment, that surrender. So there's like, there's, that is available in Christian faith. But I also thought when I listened to Elizabeth, I thought, you know, that's a courageous philosophy to believe in. This idea that everything is just going to like, in some ways, it's just sort of taking a perfectly scientific view of everything and then trying to organize a spirituality around that. So everything's going to run out of steam at the end of all things. Hope is an illusion. You might as well just kind of relinquish. And I do actually think that if we had more people in our world who did that, who just kind of like were less stressed out about everything, let go of fear and false optimism, that we'd probably have a more, I don't know, cogent society. But I also think that that, whatever that is, is not Christian faith. As much as Christians may be tempted to believe such things, it's just not Christian faith. And when I think about the story of Scripture and the way that that story has unfolded, I think about, for instance, Moses rising up in the middle of Egypt, calling out to the Israelites. And the thing that Moses does not say to the Israelites is, guys, do you know... History is just kind of moving along in the way that it's going to move along. And if you want to be happy, you just need to resign yourself to your fate. What does Moses do? And he stands up in the middle of the Israelites. He says, God has heard your cries. Okay. And the way that you've been living here in Egypt, that has not been lost on God. They have actually, he has seen it. It has gone into his ears. It has penetrated his very heart. And there is a day coming when your God is going to break the arm of Pharaoh and lead you up out of this place, Moses does not counsel the people to resignation, does he? He counsels them to hope. And his hope is based on the reality of the living God who will break through into our history and make all things right again. I think about the prophets speaking to the Israelites when they were in exile. The one thing that the prophets do not do, they never do this in any of the prophetic literature you read. You will never see them stand up and go, hey guys, you know, Everything is mysteriously connected in some way. Hope and fear are both illusions. You just need to relinquish everything. They don't do that, do they? What does Isaiah do? What does Zephaniah do? They say, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who say to Zion, your God reigns. So lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come from afar. Your God is coming. He's coming with divine retribution. He is coming to save you. They don't counsel us to resignation. They counsel us to hope. And that's a hope that's based on the promise of God. God has made a promise to be your God forever and ever and ever. And therefore, he will not let this state of affairs Last, when I think about our own country, I think the last hundred years, Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement, the one thing that Dr. King never did was stand up in the middle of black America and say, hey guys, you know, if you just accept your fate, you'll be a lot happier. He didn't do that. What did he do? I have a dream. And that dream 
when you read the details of that speech, it is deeply rooted in the Hebrew prophetic tradition. He knew his scriptures. There's a future coming that's better than the present. That future is based on the promise of God. And when we believe it, it gives us energy in the present to live our lives in a way that's hopeful and human. Can I get an amen? But that does not mean that it's easy. And when all of a sudden the promises of the good future that God intends to give his people and his world start to dawn on us, that agony that we feel between the way things are and the way things should be, we start really feeling the groan of that, don't we? It starts causing us some anxiety and consternation. The great German theologian of the 20th century, Jürgen Moltmann, put it like this. He said that when freedom is near, the chains begin to hurt. And that's our situation, isn't it? That we gather in here every single week and we declare the hope, we, the life, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come, right? And that's like in the creed. We energize ourselves around these promises and then we look around at the way things are, not as they should be. And it causes us pain. All of a sudden the shackles that we feel on our wrists hurt all the more because we know that there's a freedom that's coming. I was a pastor in Denver for a bunch of years and I remember... Uh, when our church started out, we moved there in 2009, very young church, 26, 27, 28, most of the people there. It's a very young congregation. I was 28 when we stepped into it. So if anybody older than 30 years old, like, walked into our worship services, man, it was like, make you an, you're an automatic honorary elder in our midst, you know? We just did not see a lot of people like that. And one day, one Sunday night, this woman walked in who was about 60 years old, and she looked like an old hippie long hair. I think she was probably wearing a tie-dye shirt or something. She was just, and so watching her come in was like, okay. Like some kind of miracle is like happening in front of our eyes. We have a legit grown-up who's come in and her name was Pam and she was so sweet and we fell in love with her. We got to know her over the course of a number of weeks and uh, one Lent, I think this was Lent of 2011, maybe we made the announcement that on Easter Sunday, and this is a pattern that the early church used to hold to. But on Easter Sunday, we were going to baptize people. And so I said, if you've never been baptized um, and you'd like to learn more about Christian faith, like prepare for baptism, I'm going to host a baptism class and I'd love to have you be a part of it. A number of people signed up, including Pam. And Pam offered, we didn't have office space at the church, and so Pam offered to have the little class in her apartment. So I said, I think that's a great idea. The church, like hosting the functions of the church is great. So we did, and we went to our apartment. It was this ramshackle, rundown, tiny apartment in a very rundown apartment complex in Cap Hill in Denver. And Pam was so gracious, though, to welcome us into that place and so hospitable and warm to us. And over the course of those weeks, we talked about the life of Jesus and the meaning of baptism and the kingdom of God, and we got to know each other better. And we learned that Pam's life up to that point had been very, very hard. Now, Pam, for a long time in her adult life, uh, she was on and off of drugs, and she was on the streets sometimes and in homes other times. She just lead, she led this really hard life. She lived alone for a number of years up in this uh, mobile home trailer thing uh, up in the mountains. And she just had a hard, hard life. And so it was so joyful to see her leaning into this moment, the rite of initiation in the Christian church that we believe unites us with the life of Christ. And so on Easter Sunday 2011, we baptized Pam, right? Old things have passed away up out of the waters. Behold, everything has become new. And that, in all my years of pastoring still, that's one of the most meaningful things I think that I've ever done is baptize her new life in Jesus Christ, right? And in all my conversations with Pam, there was this theme that kept coming up with her. And it was the theme of like, 
Andrew, I've tasted so much of the goodness of God, but why isn't God putting things right in my life? And for her especially, it was the pain in her body from the years of drugs and living on the streets and all that. She just lived with like searing pain in her body. And she would always say to me, I'll never forget this. She would always say, Andrew, I don't understand. Like I've received Jesus in my life and I know God as my papa. She always called God papa. God is my papa. But why is he not taking this pain away from me? Why am I still living with this chronic pain in my back and this searing pain in my nerves? Like, why is he, why won't Papa deliver me? And she said, sometimes I think it might be that he's trying to test me in some way. Or he's trying to grow my faith. And so I'm asking him, but what's the test? And how are you trying to grow my faith? Because if this is the thing, if this is the test that you want me to pass, then just tell me what it is so that I can pass it and be done with this. And he's not really telling me what it is. Why is he leaving me like this? Guys, When freedom is near, the chains begin to hurt. This is the moment that we're living in. We're not living in the moment of the fullness of the kingdom of God. We're living in a place of deferment where we've tasted something of the kingdom and yet we are awaiting the renewal at the end of all things. I think about a family that I ran into a number of years ago. Wonderful, wonderful people. Love Jesus. Been walking with Jesus for a bunch of years and had two adult children. And one of those adult children up and left the house one day. Gone for years as a daughter. Didn't know where she was. They did everything that they could to try to track her down and sort of leave out the breadcrumbs for her. You know, like, come on home. The porch light is on. And Some of you in this room, you've dealt with that agony. You know what it's like to have a child estranged. And so it was years. She was gone. And they, imagine what that's, those of you that have young kids, imagine what it would be like to have one of your kids far from you and how that would keep you up at night. If, uh, night after night after night, they were up pleading with the Lord, would you just please, oh God, bring our daughter home. And one day out of the blue, they got a call from their daughter. Mom, dad, I know it's been a long time. I've met somebody. I'm pregnant and I'm scared and I'm coming home. For them, guys, that's an Isaiah 12 moment. That's a Zephaniah 3 moment. That's like all of the things that caused you agony are being lifted away. And now God is restoring your fortunes before your very eyes. And their daughter came home. And for a year and a half, two years maybe, they had the daughter with them and their, I think it was a grandson, their grandbaby is with them in the house. For them, it was like, the let the curtain drop, the end, roll the credits, right? The story is over. And then just as quickly as she had left the first time, she was gone. Can you imagine what that would be like? To have your prayers materialize before your very eyes. And just as you are settling into a level of comfort with those answered prayers, all of a sudden, they're gone again. Why? We're living in the deferment, guys. We're living between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Everything is not as it should be. And we feel the sting of that. I think about a family I know at the main campus of New Life who for years and years and years carried this dream in their hearts to start this group home for, adult, uh, for adults with special needs. And you might know that adults with special needs are some of the most underserved, it's a, one of the most underserved population groups in our society. When their parents die, their primary caregivers, a lot of times those adults with special needs, they just become wards of the state or they're taken care of by people that don't have good resources to take care of them. And so These folks for years have had this dream of like opening up this beautiful group home, a ranch, where they could bring people in, adults with special needs, and have them cared for, and lots of layers of family, and all just beautiful. And so they found a location for it. God miraculously provided. 
And they found fund. They were able to secure funding for it. And they hired people for it. And like, have you ever been in one of those places in your life? Where like you had a dream and it wasn't just like some selfish dream. But it was a dream that's like for the good of others and the glory of God. It was like something that's worth fighting for, like a kingdom of God kind of dream. And the dream began to materialize before their eyes. And all of a sudden, like everything is coming together. And they were up and running happily, like doing this thing. Like Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what? Everything will be added unto you. Like it's all going to be taken care of. Except that they did it and it didn't. And all of a sudden, they had a couple little changes to the organization and things started spinning out of control. And now they're standing here like looking at the potential loss of this dream that they But it was so close. It was right there. How could it slip away just like that? That is what it's like to live between the first coming of the Lord and the second coming of the Lord. That we're living in a time when everything is not as it should be. And often our best efforts and our best attempts to do what's right and good they go frustrated because we're living not in the fullness of the kingdom of God. But according to the scriptures, we're living in the overlap of the ages. We're living still in that time, the old age, the first age that is passing away, and yet it still exerts power. And the new age, the dawning of the kingdom of God has like broken in, but it's not here in its fullness. If you ever feel friction around that, that friction... Well, it's just the reality of living in this moment in history. Fleming Rutledge puts it so well when she says that the church lives in Advent. And that is to say the church lives between two Advents. Jesus Christ has come and Jesus Christ will come and we don't know the day or the hour. And if you find this tension almost unbearable at times, then you understand the Christian life. Do you have places in your life where, where it feels unbearable? Things that are just not as they should be. It's a relationship that's broken. It's a dream that you have waited for years and years and years to come to fruition. And it started to, and then it slipped away. It's sickness in your mind or your body. It's things not working the way that we should, that they, the way that they should. And she says, if you find this tension almost unbearable at times, then you understand the Christian life. For we live at what the New Testament depicts as the turn of the ages. In Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is in head-on collision with the powers of darkness. And the point of impact is the place where Christians take their stand. And that is why it hurts. And I'm here to say to you this morning that if it hurts for you, there is nothing wrong with your faith. And too often in the church, what we do is we say to people that if they have places that are dislocated in their lives or not as they should be in their lives... It's a sign that their faith is malfunctioning. That faith in Jesus fixes everything. Faith in Jesus fixes your body. And faith in Jesus fixes your mind. And faith in Jesus fixes all your relationships and makes all your dreams come true. And when we tell people that, we do them a great disservice. Because it sets them up with false expectations. We're not living in the fullness of the kingdom of God. Can I get an amen from somebody? We are living awaiting the fullness of the kingdom of God. And so if you're in here this morning and you have places in your life where the tension is unbearable or it just hurts like nobody's business, welcome to the party. And what the church does is the church takes all of that ache and all of that agony. Paul called it the groaning of all creation that we also share in. What the church does is it takes that ache and that agony and it sets it before the presence of God. And it says, God, this is your responsibility, not just mine.
Like, I wouldn't feel this way unless you had put the hope for the kingdom of God in my heart. So like, God, you actually put this on me. So what are you going to do about it? And if that seems a little bit too bold to you, go read the Psalms. How often the psalmist will say to God, hey, Lord, I'm in trouble and I wouldn't have been in trouble unless I'd started following you in the first place. So why don't you do something for the sake of your name? God's name is on the line with us. Do you understand that? In your sickness and in your disease and in your estranged kids and the broken dreams that you're carrying, God's name is on the line. It's not just about you. It's about him. And when we feel that in our bones, guys, we are living truly in Advent. And I remember the first time that the meaning of Advent really came home to me, about nine or ten years old. And uh, the church that I grew up in, we did not really like celebrate the Christian calendar, the church calendar in any kind of depth. And we would give nods to it here and there, Christmas and Easter. And every once in a while, we'd sing the traditional, you know, Advent hymns and all of that. But for the most part, it was lost. It was, it was at least lost on me as a nine or a ten-year-old. And I remember one Sunday in Advent, my dad, who has a background in theater and also led worship for our church, and who was also born and raised Lutheran. <laughs> and so he knew the meaning of the cycle, the church calendar, and all the depth of it. He decided one Advent that he was going to do a Christ- uh, Christmas special or an Advent special in service. And he sang the old song, the Gregorian chant that became the famous hymn that we all know. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Do you know it? And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Until the Son of God appears. Read. There it is. That's where we're living. In the long exile awaiting the Son of God to return. But here's the hope that we have. From the earliest days of the church, when the church has lifted its voice up in prayer, it hasn't lifted its voice up to a faceless, nameless fate. When we call upon God, we're calling upon the God who became a human being. Do you know that our entreaties move Jesus? Do you know that in the Gospels, Jesus didn't just go about doing all the things that he planned to do? Do you know that the cries of people in the Gospels actually moved him to action? That there were things that happened in the Gospels that wouldn't have happened because people lifted up their voice to Jesus. The scripture actually says in a number of places that he was moved in the guts with compassion. That is still the God that we worship. And so when Christians lift their voices up in prayer over the places of agony that they're holding, they don't go, hey God, would you just do whatever it is that you want to do in the time that you're going to do it in and help me be happy in the process? Do you know what they say? They say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Not just come, but come quickly. Which is why the New Testament says that that when we lift our voices up to God, that it actually hastens the day of his return. That's the story of the Exodus. 
Their cry has reached me. It's gone into my ear, and I'm moved with compassion for them. That's our God. That when we cry out to him over the things that cause us pain, the things that have jarred us, the things that are ripping us to pieces, it does something to him. And that day of the kingdom of God, it comes faster than it would have come otherwise. So can we stand this morning? And with all of the ache that you all are holding, the places where things are not as they should be, the places where you feel stabbed in the guts, the places where it feels like everything is torn to shreds, would you just begin to lift up your voice? And we say to you this morning, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're praying it over, we are praying it over marriages that have been disrupted by sin. We say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're praying it over every family that's felt the disruption of sin. We say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm praying over everybody in this house that's dealing with sickness in mind and in body. We say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we are also praying for all of those efforts of righteousness that we are making that are feeling frustrated in the present. And it's like we want to do what's right and somehow it's just not working the way that it should. Over that, over all of those issues and many more, we say, would you say it, church? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we're in need of you. And so we turn our eyes and we turn our hearts to the only one who's able to save but there is no other name as access. There is no other name given to us in heaven or, under, on, or on earth by which we may be saved. So we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.
Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, communion serves as this moment where it's as if God looks back to us and says, Come quickly, my children. Come quickly, my son. Come quickly, my daughter. Come to the table. And, and we can come quickly because we can bring whatever it is that we're carrying. We don't have to put it down before we approach him. You can come to the table with your hurts, your pain, your broken dreams, your loss, the death. This was Jesus' invitation to his friends the night that they ate and drank together. He looked at them and with a piece of bread, he said, this is my body which will be broken for you. Much like those broken dreams, those, the brokenness that we experience, he says, this is my body which is for you. Would you take that wafer and break it in your hands? He says, every time you eat, remember me. Would you eat this morning? That same night he took a cup. It was filled with wine for us. It's, it's juice. And he said, this is my blood that is shed for you. It, it was this reminder that something about the Christian life is marked by these moments of death and loss and pain, but that it is through those very moments that God brings about his goodness and his salvation in the world. So as we drink in this moment, would you be reminded that it is not through the joy, but it is through, in fact, the loss and the hope that comes with it, that we find the face of God. Would you drink this morning? Now let us respond by singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures, 
Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascended in Matthew. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We are waiting for God, but we're not waiting for an absent God. We're waiting for God with God. Jesus is here among us. He's waiting with us. He hears our cries, and he's the great high priest, guys, carrying those cries up to the Father, hastening with us the coming of the kingdom. So as you go, would you lift your hands and receive this benediction, friends? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'll invite our altar ministry team to come forward this morning. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray for you. If you're new, stop at Connect Central on the way out. we got a gift for you. That's all we've got. We love you, New Life East. We'll see you next Sunday.